Hi there, everyone, and welcome to another Careers in Health podcast. Joining me today is rheumatologist Dr. Graham Jones. Graham, welcome to the podcast. Oh, pleasure to be here, Todd. What was it about rheumatology that first grabbed your attention? Well, rheumatology has a couple of things that make me personally attracted to it. Firstly, you get long-term relationships with patients. Yep. Um, so you get to know them for really well over many years. I've had people I've looked after for 27, 28 years and they're still coming so they can still put up with me all that time. The, the second reason I like it, apart from getting to know people, is that it's quite intellectually stimulating because there's a lot of diseases that fit under the umbrella of rheumatology and when I started in rheumatology there weren't very effective treatments for most of them. Uh, so that gave me a lot of stimulation in terms of trying to work out new ways of treating people and help them. And uh, the, th- the third reason is that uh, the group is a pretty pleasant, pleasant group in rheumatology because most of us are people persons. We tend to get on quite well with each other. It didn't hurt that there weren't too many after-hours <laughs> call-outs, so I think I've only been woken at night once in the last uh, decade and I tend to not cope too well without sleep. Uh, yep. Just ask my wife, she'll tell you how grumpy <laughs> I get when I'm sleep deprived, so that tended to suit for me. In terms of the work that you do, what does rheumatology encompass? What are the types of diseases that you see routinely? So we cover all musculoskeletal diseases, which probably overlaps us with some other craft groups in medicine. Yep. So we'll cover everything from tendon and soft tissue problems uh, through to inflammatory arthritis like rheumatoid arthritis, vasculitis uh, and uh, osteoporosis, although not all rheumatologists do that. I have a special interest in that because I did a, a doctorate in uh, osteoporosis when I was younger. Are you, um, uh, fair to say, have been around for a little while in your specialty? Mm. Um, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What is it that you enjoy still uh, about it? Well, the two things I enjoy are uh, uh, making a diagnosis, well, three things, synthesising a management plan and having patients along for the ride. So I really want the patients to go with me. And so if a patient walks out with a, a smile on their face, understanding the process and where to go, then that really is what makes my day. Yep. You mentioned that um, that you were interested in discovering therapies and you've had some research in your career. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, well, look, I, I actually, you know, you, you said you wanted warts and all with this interview, so when I passed the physician's exam, which was 1988, uh, I'd been working 100-hour weeks for two or three years at that stage. I was pretty much burnt out, and I decided to take a year off to do, you know, most people wouldn't call this taking a year off, but I took a year off to do a master's in clinepi. Yep. Uh, and that taught me all about... Uh, research methodology, but at the time Newcastle didn't really have a much of a research focus, and so I ended up going to the Garvin Institute in Sydney, uh, where they had a population-based study of osteoporosis underway. So it worked well. I had the epidemiology training, they had the clinical studies, and that really got me into a research career. And so for most of my adult rheumatology life, I've combined research usually half-time with seeing patients half-time. Yep. Um, so as a researcher, I've actually been quite successful. I've had you know, over $20 million in, in HMRC grants. 
and uh, something like 500 publications and numerous multi-centre trials. So tell us a little bit about that. So if you're in any specialty going into a research pathway, how do you get established and what does that actually involve? Well, you've got to have an interest in research. I mean, obviously, it doesn't have the financial rewards that yeah. seeing patients in private practice does. But from my point of view, I wanted a, a trade-off. So I'm happy with seeing patients, but found that 20 hours a week was about yeah. the most I could maintain high-level concentration for. <laughs> research really requires you to ask questions which was something that used to get me into trouble when I was a, <laughs> a resident, not so much as a registrar or as a consultant, but more as a junior doctor. Uh, but I always asked questions. And what struck me was a lot of the consultants didn't have answers to those questions. Yep. So there was clearly lots of new information to be uh, worked out. So to get into research, you need the interest. I think doing the master's was actually fantastic because it gave me the the background knowledge I needed, it's pretty hard to get that as a yeah. clinician. And an undergraduate, they don't really teach you much about it. Uh, I think everyone is a better clinician if they do uh, epidemiology training because it really allows you to read uh, journals. But in my specialty, a lot of people don't have those yeah. those skills, so that gives me uh, advantages. And, and I do quite a lot of teaching in my especially in provide clinical trial reports, for yep. example, yep. on a monthly basis to all the rheumatologists in Australia, just to summarise what's happening, what are the strengths and pitfalls of some of those new studies. Uh, then you need a bit of good luck and a mentor. Yep. So you really need to attach yourself to someone who's already fairly successful. And most people think that a PhD is where you do independent research, but the reality is that doesn't happen right. in Australia. Your PhD is still seen as a research training degree, mm -hmm. and it's in your postdoc period that you stretch out and do the independent research. Yeah. Uh, but you won't get the money to do a PhD without going with someone else because they score three things. They score your track record, they score the project, and they score your supervisors. Right. So if you've got a weak supervisory team, under today's climate, you won't get yeah. um, money to get started. And then it's more taking a logical process through and saying, well, now I've got this result, what is the next step? Yep. So some of those bigger trials that you've been involved in, as a, a leader of the research team, what do you do? Like, what occupies your time? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> writing the grants takes plenty of time. Yep. And managing the staff involved with them takes time. And then generally with my model, I'd have PhD students doing the analysis and writing, so I'd be supervising uh, that as well. Yep. So it does take up quite a lot of time. Um, these are multi-centre trials and not single-centre trials, so there's always something that goes wrong somewhere, <laughs> no matter how careful you are with, yep. uh, with planning things. Yep. Back to your clinical workloads. Um, what is uh, an average day like for you? Well, until this year, I, an average day would be half a day of seeing patients. Yep. So four, in Hobart, I did four or five-hour sessions a day of seeing patients. So that's about 80 patients a week on an average week. Uh, you know, half an hour for a new patient, 15 minutes for a review patient. Yep. I'm fairly efficient, so I almost never run late. 
which is quite unusual amongst uh, any specialist that I know. Uh, but patients actually appreciate that, having been on the receiving end of waiting two hours for an 8am appointment with an ophthalmologist for some of my children in the past. Mm. If there's anything I hate, it's being given a time and then no one sticks to it. There's no reason why you can't do an 8am appointment in the morning at 8am. Yes. Um, with no excuses. Uh, so that's the sort of day, and then I do half a day of research. Uh, this year I've moved into a bit less intensive a role, so I'm doing three half days a week of seeing patients in Sunshine Coast. So I'm doing two half days at Noosa Hospital and a half day, which is currently about three quarters of a day, of doing telehealth patients on my Hobart patients who have no other yep. specialist available to look after them. And I'm doing one day a week of academic work, so I've gone more to a mentoring role rather than a leadership role. Now, you mentioned telehealth there. You've had some experience with that, and this seems to have come to the fore with COVID. What's that experience been like for yeah, you? Yeah, no, I, well, I was an early and a late adopter with uh, telehealth, <laughs> meaning I took it up uh, about a week after they took out the bonus uh, money available for setting up telehealth. I <laughs> uh, was reluctant to do it at the time, uh, but because Tasmania is a very decentralised state, I've got patients from all over the state, yeah. and it's a bit hard to ask someone to drive five hours both ways. Uh, you think Tasmania's not that big, but it is big enough for that sort of drive yeah. for a 10 or 15-minute consultation. So I certainly did a lot of telehealth with patients in the northwest. Patients don't like it as much as face-to-face, and there's some disadvantages, meaning you don't see the whole person, so you can't see the body language. Mm. Often I determine how patients are going just walking behind them, watching them walk in from the waiting room which, with our fries. That's clear, and I can't do that. And patients don't like it as much because I think they prefer to sit down yeah, because uh, the tendency with telehealth is if the conversation lags, you hang up. Uh, whereas if you're in the office, they've got um, they've got time to uh, go through those sort of issues. Yeah. But in COVID, yeah, look, it was all telehealth for in Tasmania, which didn't really get much COVID and still hasn't got much COVID. Mm. It was all telehealth to about June of 2020. Yeah, but then patients, once they realised that Tassie wasn't getting any, uh, they were back out. Uh, in droves for face-to-face. Um, we mentioned before warts and all. What about your specialty irritates you and you think that could improve? Well, like most of us, paperwork is a, yeah. is a pain. Uh, I have particularly access to a lot of S100 medications. The government insists on a, yeah. on a form and script for each patient that has to be posted to BBS. Yeah and then come back to the patient. So that, that in Hobart was taking up about 20% of my consultations. Now these patients are often really well mm. on their biologic and from a clinical need point of view, I think that I would be seeing them every couple of years given how well they are. Yeah. But I have to see them twice a year to do the paperwork. Uh, other issues, well, people often say that psychological diseases can be a problem. But in rheumatology, we don't have self-inflicted disease most of the time, which yep. makes it much easier. Uh, and people like conditions like fibromyalgia, I actually don't mind yep. looking after those patients. Yep. Um, 
a lot of my colleagues hate it. Sometimes it can be problematic. The biggest problem is to be the workers' compensation yeah. uh, injury where you see many of these patients often with very little wrong with them that you could find objectively, but with complaints of severe pain. And because they're under workers' compensation, they never ever got better, even with appropriate treatment plans. So that was the biggest one. You know, I want to be able to help patients. Mm. Uh, and if they don't want to be helped, then that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, public patients tended to bug me a bit because they would tended to be much more passive with their care, meaning they come to you, they want you to make them better without much input from themselves. Yep. And we all know that the shared care model where patients and doctor are on the same pathway, those patients do a lot better. So I, I haven't done much public work for quite a few years yep. um, and have a fully private practice. And that actually has been remarkably satisfying, yep. that sort of practice. Now you mentioned that you have formed long-term relationships with a lot of your patients and that's very satisfying. Um, is there a flip side to that coin where you have uh, developed close bonds with some of those patients and, for example, they have bad outcomes or they pass away? It doesn't seem to work that way. I mean, look, I, I still, while I'm very friendly with them, we, we still don't do catch-ups or dinners. Oh, yeah. there's some patients where I, for example, play golf with them yeah. or gone to their place uh, for dinner when I've been visiting that neck of the woods. So that's happened. In terms of bad outcomes, uh, we all know we're, you know, the minute we're born, we're doomed to die. Um, so generally, a lot of the time, that hasn't been an issue. It's been sad going to, I go to their funerals often, yep. if I've known them really well. Yep. But the family seem to appreciate that rather than regard as angry again, because in rheumatology, they don't tend to die under my care. Yeah. They die under someone else's care. I think I've still been one death certificate in, in 30 years. Yep. Uh, and that was a patient I've known very well who was admitted under my care but actually died from septicemia. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So I don't see that as a downside. I mean, I, I think part of the problem in general society is people are insulated from death and bad outcomes. Mm. And then when it comes... I don't know what to do with it. Yep. Uh, whereas I usually treat them exactly the same. If someone's got cancer or those sort of issues, I just treat them exactly the same as if they didn't. Yeah. But it's amazing how many people go into either avoidant behaviour or the woe is me, making everyone feel sad and depressed mm. uh, type behaviour when the people don't want that. Yep. Uh, other downsides? Well, I don't really think there are. Yep. Well, I think uh, if, they, if you know them well you can contextualise treatment yep. quite well. Now, we're talking today from your new house on the Sunshine Coast. Mm. Um, as your career has unfolded, how have you avoided burnout, which you referred to before? How do you manage that as you get uh, further on in your career? Well, I think the issue when I was younger was uh, I had six children <laughs> as well as uh, working essentially two full-time jobs. So how I used to manage at that stage was I only did five hours of consulting. I wouldn't do more than that because mm. I found more than that tended to exhaust me somewhat. The other thing I did was adopt a very healthy lifestyle. Yep. So I did a lot of cycling uh, at that time, a bit of golf, 
uh, some swimming, kayaking, surfing. Uh, and I found if I didn't do that, I needed to do 80 to 100 k's a week on a push bike, yeah. that I'd hit a wall. Uh, as I got older, probably around 50, I found that I didn't quite have the same energy. Mm. And so the approach then was to take 8 to 10 weeks a year of holidays. Uh, that seemed to work well. I'm also quite good at compartmentalising things. So the minute I walk out the door from work, I do not think about work. Frustrates my wife because she she runs my practice uh, <laughs> up here and in Hobart and tries to talk to me about things. And I say, I just you know, I don't want to. I need uh, the mental uh, escape time. Mm. And now I've hit sixty. Uh, I've still got a fair bit of energy, but now I want to work three days a week. Yeah. Because uh, we we did that a bit during COVID, and also last winter we were up in the Sunshine Coast consulting and only working the mm. three hours a, three days a week, and found that we had we felt like totally different people yep. doing that. We had a lot more energy, and I think it was better for the patients as well as myself. Well, I would make the comment that that seems to be the typical millennial hours in in my specialty, mm. working three days a week. So maybe I'm not doing anything that, <laughs> that they're not doing. But certainly when I was younger, I worked 50 hours a week, most weeks, yep. Yep. Uh, for many years without too much problem. You mentioned your wife runs your practice. You've just moved. Um, how does that process work where you've built up a practice in Hobart and now you find yourself several thousand kilometres away? How do you start uh, well, well we're, we're still seeing a lot of the Hobart patients by telehealth, so they're my long-established patients. Mm. And we're just doing this sort of boutique practice covering from really Marichidor through to Gympie. Yeah. Well, I have had some people from further north uh, just covering that area. And the fun bit of it has been that um, I'm seeing a whole lot of new patients, so I'm not doing all that biologic paperwork yeah. that was a very big part of my life before. So I found that more challenging. Mm. Patients up here are also a bit different from uh, Tasmanian patients and there seems to be a lot more alternative minded patients meaning uh, it's quite a discussion about whether to give them a, a normal treatment <laughs> for a bad prognosis disease or whether to even have vaccination for COVID because it will make my disease worse despite the studies showing it doesn't. Yeah. Um, so there's been those sort of challenges. Uh, the hardest bit probably has been we moved to new software because we had a, a server-based software which really does not work on the cloud mm. uh, and we needed to work in multiple places because I do some consulting here at home and do some at Noosa and I may do some in other places. So we've moved to a cloud-based audit for which has been a bit of a learning curve yeah. uh, and it hasn't all gone smoothly in terms of moving things over. So currently, because I've just started that process, I'm ending up with the old software open with a, a solo process, Genie Solo, which is a, not in the server, but you can't modify it, next to the Audit 4 software at the same time. So it's uh, been a bit of a learning curve, but I still seem to be able to pick it up. I haven't forgotten how to, yep. uh, how to learn. Now you mentioned just a moment ago that um, some patients up here are not necessarily buying into the therapies that you might think are useful for them. Does that cause a sense of frustration for you? Well, I've always seen myself as a counsellor rather than a dictator. 
So maybe in this case I'm a used car salesman. <laughs> uh, so in one of those cases, a woman didn't want to take anything. She had bad prognosis from rheumatoid. Uh, and the way I got around it was by saying, well, do you want to look after your nine-year-old daughter? So she's now on a biologic therapy and doing well. Yeah. Uh, but it was more working out what the handle was uh, to try and get there. Others, on the other hand, refuse all therapy. Yeah. But I, but I see that as a as a choice. You know, if you're informed and you choose not to have something, then surely that is your responsibility, not mine. I've gone to a length to say you would benefit and you'd live longer. But if they don't want it, they don't want it. Um, you know, intensive care, I suppose, is different to rheumatology because these diseases don't kill you quickly. Although I have got someone with vasculitis who's refusing therapy and that usually doesn't end well. Mm. So I suspect she'll start stroking or infarcting bowel or kidneys or mm. other places. But I've explained that to her and she's still elected to have no therapy. Mm. Graham, just finally, what does training in rheumatology look like for a junior doctor? Well, you do your intern year, then you do three years of general basic physician training. Mm-hmm. And generally in the third year of that, you, or actually the, uh, yeah, in the third year generally you would do a physician's exam, which is now a very drawn-out affair. It's a written exam where about two-thirds uh, pass and then you head to ADIs of oral examination, mm. which is incredibly uh, draining, but fairer than the old system uh, because it's aggregate score over the whole area that works, whereas in my day it used to be one long case, two shorts. Mm. You failed any one of those, you're out. Um, and then Becky came again uh, to do the exam again. Uh, and then you do your three years of... Um, advanced training in rheumatology. Their rheumatology is a popular specialty, uh, so it generally requires people to be reasonably qualified, uh, often honours or prizes, uh, and there's often a little bit of a waiting time to get into the specialty. It may take one or two years. Uh, and so it's important to differentiate yourself from other candidates. Have some skills or interests outside medicine to show that you're a rounded person. Uh, maybe have a publication because uh, a lot of junior registrars don't, so that really yep. helps. Yep. Uh, and then you get in, once you pass the exam, generally you're welcomed yep. uh, into the specialty and there's a lot of people happy in general with time to teach you because our specialty is a, not generally a rush specialty uh, and it's an outpatient specialty. Yep. Um, so you don't get much exposure to it in hospitals. Are there many jobs available for junior Yes. Uh, so I've left Tob- uh, Tasmania, for example, which mm. has had nine rheumatologists. Um, there's now eight. Uh, the waiting list to get in to see a new rheumatologist is six months. Uh, so there's plenty of space. Now, if those rheumatologists were working part full-time, there wouldn't be spaces. But even in the sunny case... Uh, I believe a lot of people have shut their books up here and have six-month waiting list uh, for new patients, and that applies to a lot of specialties. So the general rule is with physician practices, it doesn't follow supply-demand 
economics. Right. So what happens is you start, but roughly 10% of your patients are going to need ongoing care. So by the time you've been in practice for one to two years, a lot of your practice is determined by people needing the ongoing care. Right. Uh, so most people's practices tend to get busy over time. You know, when I was training, I was told there were no new jobs. Uh, but it was just people protecting their patch. Yep. And as it turns out, there was plenty of jobs, and there still is. When you complete your training, do people tend to sub-specialise in anything? Uh, in the big cities, there is talk of trying to make inflammatory arthritis or lupus or, uh, dare I say, back pain, uh, rheumatologists. Uh, in the regional centres, that doesn't happen. We all do everything, although some people have special interests like mining, osteoporosis. Uh, probably two-thirds of new graduates from the program are going straight into private practice. So not too many people are doing research, and of those that do research, very few do a long-term clinician researcher career, even though I think that's personally the most rewarding. Graham Jones, thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get all of our great podcast interviews as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.